This podcast is brought to you by the Church Militant Combat Rosary. I don't know about you, but I've gone through a lot of rosaries over the years, from the first little red plastic fake ruby gemstone rosary I got from a nun as a little boy in reward for knowing my Hail Marys, to the jaw-droppingly gorgeous handmade jade rosary that my wife made for me a few years ago that has mysteriously vanished from my possessions, much to my horror. A few months ago, I discovered the Church Militant Combat Rosary. This isn't a girly rosary. This is a rosary for the man in your life, for the woman who wants a quality, durable product with no frills. There are no rosebuds, it doesn't smell like lavender, and there are no rainbow-colored beads. This thing is military-grade, and I'm not exaggerating. The Church Militant Combat Rosary is based on the original pull chain rosary that was commissioned by and procured by, believe it or not, the U.S. government. And it was issued by the military upon request to soldiers serving in World War I. Some of these rosaries were also seen in World War II. Veterans recognized them as service rosaries. Made of strong metal pull chain, the same sort of chain you'd see on dog tags, this rosary is meant to endure. Special locking jump rings add to the rosary's toughness. This rosary's endurance is meant to highlight the hopeful words of Psalm 136. His love endures forever. This combat rosary's use of the pardoned crucifix, miraculous metal, and St. Benedict medal makes it a powerful spiritual assault weapon against evil forces attempting to separate us from the love of God and His will for our lives. Personally, I've found this to be an incredibly powerful weapon against temptation, against the inclination to laziness that sometimes makes me want to just skip the rosary altogether. I keep this rosary on me at all times, and I can tell you that it makes a difference just having it at hand. I actually lost one, and I was almost beside myself until I got another. Other than the rosary my wife handmade for me, this is the best rosary I've ever owned. Is there a man in your life who isn't a fan of praying the rosary? This is the rosary for him. It's an awesome Christmas gift for dad, for your husband, brother, son, you name it. It's available in both gold and silver finishes. The silver one is definitely my favorite and comes with a drawstring carrying pouch and information card about the rosary's origins and the medals and crucifix that are affixed to it. Get yours today. See the ad on our website or go directly to churchmilitant.com. That's churchmilitant.com and get your combat rosary this Christmas. Hello and welcome to the 1 Peter 5 podcast, episode 11. On today's episode, I bring you up to speed on some big developments at 1 Peter 5, and we talk about restoring the sense of the sacred to the Mass and our churches. Stay tuned. The podcast is coming up next. You're listening to the One Peter Five Podcast. It is a real joy for us to welcome you all here. Rebuilding Catholic culture, restoring Catholic tradition. Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. My name is Steve. So, what do we have to talk about today? A few things. Got some announcements to make before we jump into the meat and potatoes. First of all, this week, we got our official notification from the IRS that our 501c3 nonprofit status has been approved. So that means that we are a charitable organization now. And because of that, your donations from this point forward, actually from the date of October 28th on, are considered tax deductible by the U.S. government. So if 
you need some tax deductions and you would like to help our organization make things happen and shake things up in the Catholic media, please make a donation. You can do it on our website. Uh, we have a donate link at the nav bar at the top of every page. We also have a donate link in the sidebar and most of our features also include uh, our little fundraising widget that shows the amount of money we've raised so far. We're at over $14,000 of a $30,000 goal by the end of the year. I'm pretty sure we could get there if everybody chips in a little bit. And now that it's tax deductible, I hope that maybe that, you know, it would be a mutually beneficial situation. Um, and, I, and I've actually talked to some people uh, recently who have said that they want to use at least a portion of their tithing money to support what we're doing. A lot of people don't feel comfortable supporting their diocese. Just today, uh, I saw that the U.S. Catholic Conference of Bishops um, was was tweeting out uh, something in support of the Catholic Campaign for Human Development. Obviously, the Catholic Campaign for Human Development has come under a lot of scrutiny over the last few years because some of their money goes to programs that actually has been shown to be uh, you know, used for anti, I mean, used for pro-abortion, used for pro-homosexual stuff. It's there's there's some dodgy stuff that's going on with the USCCB, um, and people have a right to be concerned, and they want to know where their money is going. So, similarly, you know, when their money goes to their parish, etc., you know, they're not always sure that it's being used for something that furthers the the important things that they believe in, the education of people and the faith, and so on and so forth. So, something my wife and I have done for years is. You know, when we're able to tithe, we give money to those organizations that we believe are doing the most good, whether it's a religious order uh, or a particular parish that's that's really knocking it out of the park, or whether it's an apostolate of some kind, or whether it's a family that we're aware of that's in need. We try to send our money to the places that we think would either derive the most benefit from it or do the most good. And I think those two things work together. So there are some people who have actually diverted their tithing or at least a portion of it toward us. And we're really appreciative of that because we don't have the big donor base that a lot of the other Catholic uh, organizations have. We don't have the capacity yet to do the big fundraising galas that they do. And I've been to some of these $100 plate dinners with you know people from the White House and from the State Department and and uh, you know, titans of industry and all this kind of stuff. And it's great. It's great to know that there are Catholics out there or individuals out there at high levels of society that want to support Catholic organizations like that. We haven't quite stepped to that level yet. Maybe we'll get there. Um, hopefully we'll get there. But for the time being, we raise money directly through you. So the 501c3 status is important. It's important for your donations. It's also important for foundations. Charitable foundations can donate to us. I believe I mentioned in a previous podcast the fact that we received a $10,000 donation from the Fraser Family Foundation, which is connected with the Mater Ecclesiae Fund for Vocations. Um, it's our single largest contribution to date, and it has facilitated us moving forward with some, some plans that we weren't sure we were going to be able to continue with. Um, but it's the first step of many that we need. We need an operating budget that's going to handle salaries and payments and all that kind of stuff over the course of a year. I need to hire an editor uh, so that I can have more time to work on the stuff that I need to work on. So there's a lot that we need to do and we can't do it without your help. Um, so we've made it possible uh, for your donations to be tax deductible and for foundations to give. So if you're able to do that, or if you know anyone who can, please just consider us uh, prayerfully and 
we will appreciate it. And we're working on actually finding an opportunity to, to schedule regular masses for our benefactors in, in return as a way of saying thank you um, for, what, for what you're doing for us. So that's the first big announcement. Um, I'm very happy to let you know about that. Second thing that I wanted to talk about today that I think is really cool is that um, a little while back, I sent an email through mysterious back channels to Bishop Athanasius Schneider. I sent him an email basically asking what Catholics can do, um, laymen, theologians, writers, academics, what is it that we can do when we see the errors that seem to be kind of the hallmark of the of the synod, uh, or at least one of the, the defining features of the synod were these theological errors that were causing confusion and concern. How can we address these in a more formal way? Because, uh, as I've mentioned in the past, Bishop Schneider addressed the synod and the errors that were contained therein and, and the misconceptions that were promoted through it. I thought he did so beautifully and with charity and with clarity, uh, which needs to happen. And so he seems to be, even more than Cardinal Burke, standing at the forefront of of the resistance movement, as it were, to, hey, we can't redefine Christ's teachings. And even if bishops say that you can, they're wrong, you can't follow them. So I wrote to him, hoping for something. And less than 24 hours later, I received a very in-depth and thoughtful response from Bishop Schneider, which was very humbling. I actually received it on my birthday. It was a great birthday present. Um, but it, it, it contained so much, and yet it was written in, in such a way that it I think it could be fleshed out even more. So I've been having an ongoing dialogue with Bishop Schneider, and I've received his permission to work with him to turn this into... Um, an article, something that that can be shared with all of you. Um, and I really think it needs to be shared because the advice that he gives is practical and concrete. So I will be working with him on that until we get it right. And I can't say for sure when we're going to publish it because he needs to be able to put literally his imprimatur on it. Um, but we're going to do that and we're going to put it out there because I think it's something that people need to hear and to see. So we're very excited about working with Bishop Schneider because he's a big, big hero of mine. And I think that you know, he is sort of a voice crying out in the wilderness right now. He's, he's Athanasius Contramundum and we need to support him in that. And we need to hear his voice because he's leading us uh, in the direction that the church needs to go. So speaking of the direction that the church needs to go, uh, I kind of want to talk today about um, some things that I think we can do within the church. And I say we in a broad sense because it's going to require the clergy and, and the willing bishops to do it. But there are some things that we can start doing to really restore a sense of the sacred uh, to Catholicism, which I think is something that we desperately need. So there's a story that is coming out this week, has come out this week out of Lincoln, Nebraska. Uh, Bishop James D. Conley of Lincoln, Nebraska, who replaced Bishop Fabian Bruskowitz, 
uh, was also known as a very, very orthodox bishop. He announced that many of the faithful in the Diocese of Lincoln are going to be experiencing something new this Advent. Those who come to the cathedral in Lincoln will see masses celebrated by all the priests there, including Bishop Conley himself, at Orientum. It's a big deal. It's a huge deal. Um, this is not something that's done many places, and when it is done, it's very rarely done by a bishop. There are a few. In the letter, the announcement that he made, he says, The Mass is rich with symbolism. The vestments of the priest remind us of the dignity of Christ the King. We strike our breasts and bow our heads and bend our knees to remember our sinfulness, God's mercy, and his glory. In the Mass, the ways we stand and sit and kneel remind us of God's eternal plan for us. Since ancient times, Christians have faced the East during the holy sacrifice of the Mass to remember to keep watch for Christ. Together, the priest and the people faced the East together, waiting and watching for Christ. Even in the churches that did not face the East, the priest and the people stood together in the Mass, gazing at Christ on the crucifix, on the altar, and in the tabernacle to recall the importance of watching for his return. The symbolism of the priest and people facing ad orientum to the East is an ancient reminder of the coming of Christ. But the symbolism of facing together and awaiting Christ is a rich, time-honored, and important tradition. Especially during Advent, as we await the coming of the Lord, facing the East together, even symbolically facing Christ together at the altar and on the crucifix, is a powerful witness to Christ's imminent return. Today, at a time when it is easy to forget that Christ is coming and easy to be complacent in our spiritual lives and in the work of evangelization, we need reminders that Christ will come. During the Sundays of Advent, the priests of the Cathedral of the Risen Christ will celebrate the Mass at Orientum. With the people of God, the priest will stand facing the altar and facing the crucifix. When I celebrate Midnight Mass on Christmas, I will celebrate at Orientum as well. This may take place in other parishes across the Diocese of Lincoln as well. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what effect it would have on the life of the faithful, even if just through the sheer provocation of, of something unexpected? If a, if a diocese were able to, I mean, even more than this, say just for the month of Advent, all masses are going to be said at Orientum. I mean, what what a profound wake-up call, <laughs> for lack of a better term. Maybe it's not the right term. But it would really be a bracing change that a lot, I mean, it would catch everyone's attention because they would be, they just wouldn't be expecting it. It would be so out of the ordinary. And it would prompt many questions within the context of the liturgy, even if it's, why is Father doing that? It's weird. I don't like it. Why does he have his back to us? Because that's what people always say. It would prompt questions that would begin conversations that could lead to a deepened understanding of, of the liturgy, of the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. And I guarantee that's exactly what Bishop Conley wants here. He's not just doing this, you know, for giggles. 
He's doing this because he knows that just one liturgical season that's only a little over a month and a half long, not even a month and a half long, it's about a month, right? How many Advent? Four? Yeah. So we're talking about a month where people are going to be seeing this once a week on Sunday. And yet it will probably have a profound impact that will lead to more of the faithful requesting that this practice be continued beyond Advent. I would be surprised if if Ad Orientum does not spread in the Diocese of Lincoln because of this action. And, and I think that this ties in, there's another interesting story that's being passed around this week. Um, and it's about Bill Murray. Bill Murray's got a new movie out. I don't know much about it. It's called St. Vincent. Um, but the topic, I guess, dovetails enough with Catholicism that the interviewer at The Guardian kind of brings Bill Murray's Catholicism into the story. And he got some, she got some interesting comments from from Bill Murray about that. So she says, his parents were Irish Catholics. One of his sisters is a nun. I didn't know this. Um, This conspicuous religion adds to his broad church appeal. You don't need to ask if his faith is important to him. He talks about how 19th century candidates risk not getting canonized because the church is keen to push ahead with the likes of John Paul II and Mother Teresa. I think they're just trying to get current and hot, he smiles. One saint he does approve of is Pope John XXIII, who died in 1963. I'll buy that one. He's my guy. An extraordinary, joyous Florentine who changed the order. I'm not sure all those changes were right. I tend to disagree with what they call the new Mass. I think we lost something by losing the Latin. Now, if you go to a Catholic Mass, even just in Harlem, it can be in Spanish, it can be in Ethiopian, it can be in any number of languages. The shape of it. The pictures are the same, but the words aren't the same. Asked, isn't it good for people to understand it? He responded, I guess, he says, shaking his head. But there's a vibration to those words. If you've been in the business long enough, you know what they mean anyway. And I really miss the music, the power of it, you know? Yikes. Sacred music has an effect on your brain. Instead, he says, we get folk songs, top 40 stuff. Oh, brother. So really interesting take from, obviously, a non-theologian, a very powerful pop culture figure who grew up Catholic. He's one of nine children. And the effect that the liturgy had on him, because it was profound, the effect was very potent. Profound liturgy does that. And that's done through a lot of the exterior things that we see at the Mass. Now, we've touched on this before, and other writers have done the same, but there are some things we could do right now that would help to restore the sense of sacred to the Mass. Now, my personal preference would always be, well, how about we just return to the Mass we had in 1962 and take organic liturgical development from there, because it seems as though Every opportunity that we try to take to do the reform of the form, uh, the reform of the reform, just moves the new mass back in the direction of the old one. It's just trying to make it look as much like it as possible. So to me, it's it seems kind of silly. Sometimes you make a sculpture and it doesn't come out that well, and you kind of have to wad up the clay and start over again from the drawing board. 
I I am of that opinion with the new mass that it just it's too hard to make it right. So why don't we go back to what we had and figure out the best way to move forward? Hopefully not too fast. Um, but there are things we could do right now. So chief among these uh, for the restoration of the sacred, I would include restoring the posture of reception for communion uh, back to kneeling and on the tongue. Super important. Um, I mentioned Bishop Schneider earlier. I'm currently reading his book, Dominus Est. It is the Lord, uh, which is all about Eucharistic piety. And he makes a very strong case there that we need to return to this mode and method of reception if we want to restore the sense of, of the truth of the real presence of the belief. In one of his interviews, actually, Bishop Schneider gives an anecdote about a Muslim man coming to visit a Catholic church and at the time of, of communion, he turns to the Catholic next to him and he asks him, well, what is that? And the Catholic says, oh, well, that's, you know, that's Jesus in the Eucharist. And he said, so it's a symbol. No, no, it's not a symbol. We believe it's, it's really Jesus. Oh, but, he, but I mean, he's just spiritually present. No, no, we believe in the transubstantiation that, that body, blood, soul, and divinity are truly made present. And despite the accidents of bread and wine, the substance is replaced with God's presence. And the Muslim looks at him again and he says, I, I do not believe that this can be true because you do not act like it. So this idea of Eucharistic piety and reverence in the external gestures and signs is a huge deal. And then Bishop Schneider, of course, makes uh, a very strong case for the banality of receiving Eucharist as though it is a common food rather than being fed by the church. Uh, diminishing our sense of reverence, and of course, then just the loss of fragments of the Eucharist. Um, hugely problematic because each tiny fragment of the Eucharist obviously contains our Lord's body, blood, soul, and divinity in its entirety. And the fragments fall on the ground, and we trample them underfoot. So we're trampling Christ with our feet in his own churches. And how can we be willing to accept this? So, I would say that's maybe the biggest thing, most important thing. Uh, if I had to rank it, I would say after that would be ad orientum worship, and we'll get back to that in a second. Um, I would then say doing away with extraordinary ministers of the Eucharist uh, for a number of reasons, including the fact that there is a confusion and a conflation between the role of non-ordained uh, the non-ordained ministry of of the faithful with the ordained ministry of the priest uh, and the idea of who should be on the altar and in the sanctuary and who shouldn't, uh, but also dealing with many of the same issues of Eucharistic piety uh, that I have already mentioned from Bishop Schneider. So that would be the third thing. And then the fourth thing would be, uh, let's just kick the sign of peace to the curb. It's been part of the liturgy forever for the priest and the deacon. And the priest's intonation of Pax Domini Sit Semper Vobiscum is sufficient to express the peace that we should share because at that moment we're at a very deep moment of, of Eucharistic piety because our Lord has just been made present on the altar through the consecration. So it's a weird time for us to all distract ourselves with each other and with you know lots of touching and smiling and kissing and hugging and it, it it's it's really odd if you think about it anthropologically speaking where it is in the mass we've just made the central mystery of our faith present through the miracle of the priesthood and now we're just going to just talk amongst ourselves it's 
it's almost like it's an intentional distraction. And if it's not intentional, why didn't someone think to, I don't know, maybe not do that? (laughs) Because I would hope, I would like to believe that this was something that would be taken into consideration. So those are the four things that I think could most obviously and easily benefit uh, restoring a sense of reverence and sacredness to the Mass. So going back again to Ad Orientum, which a priest friend of mine really prioritized as the number one thing he would he would return if he had only one option, one silver bullet to try to restore the life of the faithful in his parish. He said turning back around to face the altar would be the number one thing he would do. So why? Why is this important? Well, I think it's an essential point of praxis. It's anthropologically speaking, it's how it makes sense to worship, right? I mean, we follow a leader into prayer. We follow a leader anywhere. And you've probably heard the analogy before. When you're sitting on a plane, you don't expect the pilot to be turned around facing you. When you're in the backseat of a car, you want your driver to have their eyes on the road. Uh, If you are marching into battle, you're not all turned around facing backward as you head into the enemy fire. When we are moving toward a goal, we move together, eyes forward, right? And if there's a leader, the leader's typically in the front. Well, together, through worship, we're moving toward God. That's what we're doing. We're facing God. We're facing liturgical east, offering a sacrifice to God through the hands of the priest, and at the same time, anticipating Christ's return, which we have been told will come from the east. So, This is, it's just what makes sense, right? But we also have precedent. In the Temple of Jerusalem, only the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies. And at the time, he only did this once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And he would go in and and burn incense and make a sacrifice. He left the people behind as he went in to the presence of God and offered an oblation on behalf of all, for the sins of all, not just his, but for everyone. He was the the operating principle. He went in and he made the sacrifice on behalf of everyone. Well, the Catholic priest does exactly the same thing. Every priest, since his priesthood is one with Christ, is a high priest, is the high priest. He is altar Christus. There's only one high priest, right? The high priest now is Christ. And every Catholic priest is sort of a little Christ. He participates in Christ's priesthood, so he acts in the person of high priest. So in the Levitical priesthood, and the Old Testament priesthood, there was only one man who could be high priest at a time. That hasn't changed. It's still Christ. But the priests do that through a participation in Christ's priesthood. So this now happens every day, not just once a year. Every day has become a day of atonement as the perfect offering um, that's made as an oblation for our sins. Christ, whose sacrifice on Calvary is once again made present and is offered on the altar of salvation to the Eternal Father. So the priest in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass leads us in prayer. He ascends the altar. He enters the Holy of Holies, a space which Only he can occupy. 
He's the only one who has the right to be there. He doesn't turn his back on us, which is what you always see the way it's described when people are looking at the traditional forms of worship from the outside in. And it's not just the traditional Latin mass. I mean, it's the Eastern rites too. They all face the altar. So he's not turning his back on us. He is turning his face and our eyes toward heaven, toward God, toward our eternal father. So over time, Adorantum worship, I think, has great restorative potential for the life of faith. It's a, um, you could call it a reorientation, literally, of the psychology of our worship. There's an excellent book on the liturgy. I, I recommend it to people all the time. It's called The Heresy of Formlessness. It's by a German novelist named Martin Mosbach, who found his way back to practicing the Catholic faith through the rediscovery of the traditional Latin Mass later in his life. And he asks the question in the book, how can a man be made to see that he is leaving the present time behind? Because he talks about entering sacred space and sacred time when you go to the Mass. So how can a man see that he's leaving the present time behind if the space he enters is totally dominated by the presence of one particular individual? How wise the old theology was when it prescribed that the congregation should not see the priest's face, his distractedness, or coldness, or even more importantly, his devotion and emotion. Taking the presence of the priest out of the equation, his face, his emotions, his expressions, his desire to engage and even to entertain us, and, and I'm not exaggerating there, I've I was told about a mass that a friend went to in college um, where there was a bishop present and speaking and he said again this is second hand but I trusted the person who told me this he said that the bishop said during the homily that the priest's job is to be sort of the Johnny Carson of the mass that it's his role to entertain and titillate the faithful these are words I can't imagine anyone ever using uh, in res- in respect and regards to the priesthood, but let alone the fact that the theology here is just terrible. That's not the priest's role at all. Um, that's not what he's supposed to be doing. Um, so taking him out of the equation and taking his personality off the table, that's what allows us to worship God unimpeded. He offers the sacrifice. He does it on our behalf. It's efficacious for us whether or not we're participating. So this idea that we need to participate to make it work, it's like one of these crowd applause meters. You know, the more that you yell, the louder it gets. It hits a certain mark, and then they start blowing T-shirts out into the stands with a T-shirt gun. This isn't what we need. We don't have to hit the post on the noise meter in order to make the consecration valid. The priest does it for us. Our participation is entirely irrelevant and thus needn't be an exterior participation. It can be. I don't have a problem, honestly, with dialogue mass uh, according to the 1962 rubrics where the priest, I mean, not the priest, but the people say the response is the altar server. Some people have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with that. I think it's fine. I don't have a problem with antiphonal chant and engaging the community in the liturgy in, in such a way that it keeps them dialed into what's going on. And then they can follow that interior participation that Pope St. Pius X recommended when he said, pray the Mass, pray, you know, follow along with heart and mind 
every word and gesture of the priest. It's an interior participation with the sacrifice the priest offers on our behalf, right? So we're able to worship much better when the priest isn't getting in the way. We worship God. The priest offers the sacrifice for God, uh, to God, and and he leads us in that. And we're all doing it together. There's no... this this thing where the priest faces the people and the people respond and it's this back and forth, that's where dialogue gets dicey. I remember being a kid and I thought that our responses were directed at the priest, For you know, especially when we do this doxology, which is very Protestant. Um, it comes from the Didache, but, but its invocation at the end of the Our Father is a very Protestant construction. It's what Protestants pray the Our Father with, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's something that they for whatever reason, and I don't even know the history of it, that's how they pray the Our Father. Catholics don't do that. We don't add that at the end. So it's really weird to stick it into the Mass. Um, but but all that being said, when I was a kid, I remember thinking that we were saying that to the priest, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. I didn't have the theology to know that obviously that is something that belongs to God, not to the priest. There was just the sense of, well, we're talking to him, so we're telling him that he has all this. Um, you know, so that's the mind of a child, but overall there is that sense of when we're speaking things to a priest, we begin to feel like we're addressing him and not the almighty father. So we want to get that out of the way. So this move that Bishop Conley is doing, it's a big deal. And I really hope it's so well received that the practice spreads. I would love to see other bishops follow suit and say, you know what? That's a great idea that Bishop Conley had. I'm going to do that in my diocese as well. So all of this ties into something that I think it's really crucial for us to start thinking about collectively, and that is an understanding of sacred space and how to reclaim it. Now, I understand that the phrase sacred space could be interpreted by many people to be sort of a new agey and esoteric term, but it's really not. The The church is a sacred space, right? And you go into that and we're in the presence of God. Now, as the story goes, the high priests of the Old Testament, those who entered the temple, they went in with a rope tied around their ankle. Well, why? Because if they went in unprepared to offer the sacrifice, unclean, or failing to follow the rubrics of what they were supposed to do when they entered into the Holy of Holies, they knew very well that God might strike them dead for their, for their hubris, for their unworthiness. You know, it's sort of like when St. Paul says that, you know, we eat and drink condemnation unto ourselves if we receive the Eucharist in a state of mortal sin, paraphrasing. But this idea of the wages of sin are really death. Going back to Adam and Eve, eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil brought death upon them. They die the death of sin. You know, the priests who entered into the Holy of Holies unworthily could be struck dead, just like Uzzah, who touched the Ark of the Covenant against the divine commandment that we read about in the second book of Samuel. You know, all he was doing, as far as I can tell, but I'm no biblical exegete, was trying to catch the Ark so that it wouldn't fall on the ground. But it was explicitly forbidden to touch the Ark. And God doesn't mess around when he makes a rule, we have to follow it. So, if the priest fell dead within the Holy of Holies, nobody but the high priest was allowed to go in and get him out, and he was the only high priest. So, 
They literally used the rope around his ankle to drag him out of the Holy of Holies. That is how sacrosanct that space was. Not even for death could a lesser man enter into that interior sanctum of the Lord. So if you want to talk about a strong concept of sacred space, I'd say that one was pretty hard to top. Now, obviously, we don't have anything like that now. And I would argue it's probably not something any of us would really want. But there used to be a sense, whether it was cultural or otherwise, that the Catholic Church, which you know, literally houses God's presence, is a place that, and I, and I say the Catholic Church, I mean any Catholic Church, is a place that deserves a great deal of reverence. Do you remember in the days when every Catholic used to bless themselves whenever they passed a church? Some men would sort of give a tip of the brim of the hat or even take it off as they walked in front of the doors of a church. As a child growing up, when we drove by a parish, any parish, we always blessed ourselves. We still do. I hope you do. We should all do it. I mean, it's, it's that sense of the sacred in our midst. You're driving down the road, you're having a conversation, you're listening to the radio, whatever, but you realize that St. Anne's is over there on the right and you just pause, whatever you're doing for a second as you drive by and you make the sign of the cross because you're paying reverence and homage to the blessed sacrament that's contained therein. Men, do you remember to remove your hat or your hood if you're wearing one when you enter a church? I know that it's not the days of Don Draper anymore. Men don't all wear fedoras uh, everywhere that they go. I remember when I was a kid, actually, there was this parish in Binghamton, New York, where I grew up, uh, St. John the Evangelist, the south side of Binghamton. And it was my grandparents' parish. My parents were married there. Um, There's a lot lot of history for my family in this parish. But whenever I would go visit my grandmother and we would go to that parish, they had the little the little hat holders on the back of the pews that were just kind of like hinged on a spring. So it was just a little clamp and you'd, you'd the whole time as kids that we would sit in the, in the pews and, you know, being kids and being bored, we'd be just pushing on the button of the hat thing, opening it and closing it, pinching our fingers in it and seeing how long we could take the pain of the thing. Cause it had a pretty good grip, but those hat clippy things that were on the back of the pews is cause every guy wore a hat outside of mass and then took it off when he came in that was what you did and now i see guys usually young men or boys um, or people who look like they don't know what they're doing when they walk into a church and they don't take off their hats um you know i've seen people just wearing their beanies and stuff sitting in mass saint paul tells us in first corinthians that a man must uncover his head when he enters the church to pray Conversely, he also says that women must cover their head when they enter a church. So men uncover, women cover. This is where the practice of veiling comes from. I know it's not very common anymore. Um, And even in traditional parishes, I mean, not everybody does it. Um, People forget. People don't understand why they should. Uh, People have small babies that constantly rip the chapel veil off their heads. That's one of the reasons why my wife doesn't always do it because it drives her crazy that she's constantly having a fight to put it back on. Um, but it's a, it's a biblical prescription. St. Paul says that women cover their heads when they enter church and men uncover their heads. And I think that the notion of men taking off their hats um, out of respect has been retained a little bit more than women covering their heads, but it's, it's something worth working on and restoring. 
There are other signs, maybe greater signs, that we've lost our concept of the sacred in church. Immodesty and inappropriate dress in church has been a problem for a really long time. I know you've seen it. At some time or another, pretty much every guy has been distracted by a young lady ahead of him in the communion line who's wearing a short skirt or something extremely tight or revealing. It happens. In college, I remember all the time turning to my guy friends and going, I don't know where to look because here I am in mass and everywhere I turn, it's an occasion of sin because these women are dressed very provocatively. And as a single young man, that's a real challenge. Um, just trying to stay focused on what's way up there on the altar when what's right in front of me in the pews is very eye-catching. Um, not unpleasant, but not appropriate. Um, I had a family member who actually recently stayed with us, and he slept in when we went to our usual Mass. And so he just kind of randomly went to the closest parish to the house for Sunday Mass. And he told me that there was a teenage girl sitting in front of him, and she was wearing a T-shirt that said, look better naked on it. And I think yoga pants. And I mean, what the heck? First of all, if you're a parent, why are you letting your daughter go to mass dressed that way? Um, You don't get in my car if you look like that. But, you know, I see guys too all the time coming to mass wearing shorts and t-shirts and flip-flops, sneakers. Mass is not a black tie affair, right? We know this. But at a bare minimum, bare minimum, it's business casual. So making an extra effort, gentlemen, to throw on a sport coat and a tie, it's not that hard. I hate wearing ties. Um, But when I do, it never feels like a mistake. I never feel underdressed. And the formality of my attire reminds me of the formality of the occasion. If a nice restaurant or a symphony or an opera hall requires you to wear certain things in order to gain admission, why shouldn't our churches? Isn't it at least as important as any of those other situations? So modesty and propriety in dress, and it's contagious. Tell you what, the more people you see at a parish dressed nicely, women wearing nice dresses, men wearing suits, and ties. It has an effect. So the people who aren't as familiar maybe with that mask who show up in the shorts and the t-shirt and stuff, they look around and I mean, I don't know about you, but if, if you've ever been to a party where you're underdressed, you feel like an idiot. And the next time you go to a party that sounds like it might be similar, you ask ahead of time, Hey, what's, what's the dress for this? What's the attire? Because you don't want to feel like that again. Well, the more of us that take this on voluntarily, it doesn't need to be imposed per se, although modesty, I think, does. But the more of us who take this on voluntarily will set an example for those who maybe just aren't thinking about it. And then they'll see all of us and they'll think, huh, I don't know, maybe next time I come, I should give this a little bit more of an effort. So I think that that's something collectively we can do. Uh, you know, another thing that I've been seeing a lot lately and it's really driving me nuts, is phones in church. Not the presence of phones in church, although I don't know why we need them in there, but I've brought mine in, just turn off the ring or whatever. But but seeing people using them within the church proper, within the nave of the church. So I'm not talking about the narthex, you know, in the back with the doors closed and people are walking around and yeah, 
I mean, people do that now and then. I've done it, um, you know, when I'm out walking a kid in the back who's fussing or whatever and I can't hear anything that's going on. Or I've seen priests. I actually saw a priest, an associate pastor, checking his texts or whatever it was he was looking at on his phone as he's walking through the narthex. He wasn't the one celebrating Mass. Mass was going on. He kind of walked out to see where they were in Mass because it was his job to go up and help distribute communion later on. But he was just scrolling through his phone as he walked through the back. So it's not ideal, but yeah. I'm not going to get crazy about it. We we have inundated ourselves with these devices and distractions, and we've got to walk that back, and that's a different ball of wax altogether. But the thing I have a problem with is, so I came into the church after confession one day. So I leave the confessional, and in this particular parish, uh, it was in the back, in the narthex. And so you walk into the, you know, into the church proper, into the nave to do your penance in front of the Blessed Sacrament. And there's this kid sitting in there on his phone or whatever it was, and he's playing a video game, and he had a hat on. And I couldn't, honestly, I know, you're going to all be wondering, well, did you say something to him? No, you know what, I didn't, because I couldn't think of any nice way to say it that wasn't just going to cause more problems, because anybody who's sitting in the back of a church with a hat on playing a video game clearly needs some catechism, need somebody to help them to understand what's important. And I can't imagine that I would have been anything other than confrontational and it just wouldn't have ended well. So I did not. I just prayed for him instead. I don't remember if I prayed for him to leave. That might have been part of it, but neither here nor there. So I've seen that. Um, Recently, going to confession, um, and this is where I seem to see it the most, people seem to have a little more presence of mind during Mass, although I have seen people on their phones during Mass which just, I just want to throw their phone as far as I can. Um, but in, you know, people in line for confession, texting away, scrolling through their Instagram feed, just looking at whatever. I get it. It's boring to wait for things. We live in an always-on, always-distracted culture. You sit at a red light, you check your email. You're standing in line at the grocery store, you're checking Facebook. You know, you're doing whatever you're waiting for the grill to heat up you're sending out tweets i i understand i work in an online medium and i spend way too much time doing that kind of thing however you are in the presence of god literally in the presence of god act like it i don't know why don't you pray how about if you need to be fiddling something with you know your hand reach into your pocket and pull out your rosary Try that instead. Resist the urge. Find the presence of mind not to be screwing around with your phone inside of the church. I I think of these high priests who literally, they went into the Holy of Holies with a rope around their ankles so that people could drag them out if they died during the sacrifice for some reason. And their fear was that God would strike them down for being unworthy. We've gone from that to people playing video games inside the church in front of the Blessed Sacrament. It's got to stop. It has to stop. Eucharistic piety is at the heart of this because if people recognize what you know, where they are and whose presence they're in, that's going to be diminished. They're going to have an impulse to pray and not so much of an impulse to distract themselves. It is also part and parcel of a culture that's just grown grown way too casual. So I'm not pointing fingers at anybody because who doesn't want to be comfortable? I, I love being in a sweatpants and sweatshirt. 
if I have to go outside, <laughs> I mean, I'm looking like a schlub. I throw on a pair of Crocs. I don't, unless I've got to go somewhere where I've got to dress nicely, I frequently neglect to do so. Um, and it's to my own detriment, honestly. It makes people not take me as seriously. Uh, it makes me not take myself as seriously. I'm not formal by nature, and there's an effort involved. And it's one I frequently fail to make. But, you know, when you do make the effort, it brings with it a certain dignity and self-respect. Try it. If you, like millions of Americans, now have an opportunity to telecommute part of the week, you can work from home. Instead of plopping down in front of your computer in your jammies, which is appealing because it's the thing you don't get to do at work, right? Just grab a cup of coffee, you're in your jammies, your hair is all sticking up, you didn't shave, and you sit down and you start pretending to be a professional. But if you actually get dressed like you're going into the office and do your work, I guarantee you'll be more productive. Guarantee it. Um, today I had to go to parent... Why am I having such a hard time speaking today? Today I had to go to parent-teacher conferences before I did this podcast. So what did I do? I dressed nicely for the parent-teacher contest. Uh, it's not a contest. Parent-teacher conferences. Good Lord, it's been a long week. And I decided to just stay dressed nicely um, and sit down and do the prep for the show. And wouldn't you know it, I got a lot more done. I don't know what it is. It's it's psychological. There's spillover uh, in our worship from this exact same phenomenon. We enter the sacred space of the church. We're entering the presence of the Eucharistic Lord. The more formally we conduct ourselves, not just the way we dress, but our general demeanor of reverence and silence in the church, as well as the way liturgy is celebrated, the more likely we will be to worship God with propriety and to be disposed to receive sacramental graces from him. We're bodily creatures, guys. We're not pure spirits. So the external things that we do, the extrinsic things, still inform the interior man. If you enter a church that's built to look like a gymnasium or an amphitheater, have you ever been in one of those? I have. You're going to be more likely to want to chat and to socialize and you're not going to have that that feeling of needing to pray like you would otherwise have. Now, if you enter a Gothic cathedral or better yet, St. Peter's Basilica, something totally different happens. And if you've had this experience, you know what I mean. I don't know if you've ever been to St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Uh, I've had the the good fortune of having gotten to go there several times. And it's, a, it's an incredible experience. It's one I wish every Catholic could have. When you step inside that church, it's one of the most humbling things you can imagine. You feel so incredibly tiny and insignificant. There's just such a massivity to that basilica. I mean, it's so big that within the cupola, you could literally stick the Statue of Liberty in there and it wouldn't touch the top. And it's just this enormous, thick structure. I mean, a lot of Gothic cathedrals don't quite have that feeling. They're kind of spindly and, and you know, a little bit emo, for lack of a better word. But there's something gossamer about the way that they're built. But, but these Romanesque structures, man, they are just rugby player churches. They're solid, stocky, 
And then it's huge. And inside St. Peter's, they actually have these little lines that show you this is where such and such a cathedral and such and such a city could fit inside St. Peter's. It's huge. So you feel insignificant. And you know that nobody will ever build something that grandiose, fill it with so much art and treasure and put so much passion into it and do it in your honor and spend years, years and years and years and years and years doing it. It would be like having the pyramids built for you. Only the pyramids aren't nearly as impressive as St. Peter's is. And that was built for Pharaoh, who everybody believed was a god. So when you enter into a church like this, it inspires a sense of awe and silence. We build these collectively as Catholics. We build these with magnificence to reflect the magnificence of our creator. He fills the space. We remember whose presence we're in and Christ, our God, in that tiny host reserved in the tabernacle, he swells to encompass every molecule of that austere stillness we encounter within. You can feel him. You can feel him almost palpably calling you into the depth of your insignificance before his presence, but at the same time loving you, telling you in the quiet of your awestruck mind as you crane your neck and look around at, at the beautiful art and the windows and just the, the space. And he's telling you in that stillness, I am here. This is what it is to be a Catholic. That's why it's so important for us to build, you know, not these humble little chapels or these pre-manufactured steel worship spaces, these Protestant churches. No, we're called to build huge, extravagant, outrageous churches. We are supposed to allow the poor and the rich alike to experience the riches and the grandeur of God. There are people who want to sell off the Vatican and its treasures and give it to the poor. The poor deserve to have that, to have that richness of the encounter with God. In many of these these cathedrals and these basilicas across Europe, the most amazing ones that were built were built by the peasants voluntarily. They worked on these things because they loved God and this was how they could show it to him. We want to be caught up in his mystery. This is what our friend Elliot Bogus calls incarnational theology. It makes what is ethereal into something concrete. So you may struggle to believe in God at any given moment of your life. Many of us have gone through that. But you have no choice but to believe that your fellow men, your fellow Catholics, believe in him. Because they spent so much time and effort and such vast resources on glorifying him in these great temples of Christendom. You do not build churches like this to things that you do not care about. These are monuments to divinity. Rediscovering the sacred is something to which we should all aspire. Leaving the crass culture at the door leaving your phone in the car so you don't have to worry about whether you left the ringer off. We've all been there when somebody's phone starts ringing during Mass. It's very embarrassing for them, especially during the consecration. You know, not worrying about whether the theology debate on Facebook is going to seem more edifying than the homily. Been there, done that, 
I have literally walked out back during a homily that was driving me nuts and started looking. (laughs) I leave my phone in the car now because it's such a bad idea. Leave the world outside those doors. Shake the dust from your feet. Plumb the depths of God's love in prayer, adoration, petition, thanksgiving, reparation. It'll do wonders for your soul. You have been listening to the 1 Peter 5 podcast. This has been a production of 1 Peter 5 Incorporated, copyright 2014, all rights reserved. Please remember to visit us online at www.1peter5.com. That's www.1peter5, all spelled out, all one word, dot com. You can join our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash 1peter5. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash, you guessed it, 1peter5. If you feel we have provided you with something of value, please hit our donate page and make a contribution. It not only helps pay for web hosting and the fine content we provide, but keeps food on the table, coffee in our cups, and the lights on, which really helps us see what we're doing. Until next time, I'm Steve Skojak. Thanks for listening.